All right. Well, today we're going to kick off a new series on hope, calling this the Hope Series. And we're going to be going through the next four weeks leading up to Christmas about hope. Who could use some hope in the room this morning? There we go. I know a lot of us are facing a lot of things. But this morning, I want to talk about the H in hope, which is, I believe, hospitality. Hospitality. And I want to talk to us this morning on how to practice biblical hospitality. Now, already, if you have a personality in this room that may be more introverted than extroverted, you may be checking out right here and going, oh, that's not me. <laughs> but how about the Bible actually doesn't just uh, share that this is a good idea. It's actually a command in Scripture that all believers practice hospitality. Now, I know some of us have the gift of hospitality, and some of us may be more gifted in that area, but I want to encourage us that every believer in the Bible will look today and see that we are actually commanded through the Word to show some level to hospitality. So I want to unpack that a little bit this morning, and I want to start here. When I say the word hospitality, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? Food. There we go. I'm right there. What else? What are some other things that come to your mind when you think of the word hospitality? Family, right? Food. How about fun, games? Anybody play games, have people over the house and play games? That's always fun. I think for most of us, that's what our mind gravitates to when we think of the word hospitality. We think of basically having some friends over, having a good meal, maybe playing some games, entertaining our guests, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But I want to begin to separate that. That's a worldly hospitality. Like you don't have to be a Christian, a believer to practice that, to demonstrate that, right? You know, a lot of people do that. But biblical hospitality from the word actually takes on a deeper meaning. And what I've learned, the distinction between worldly hospitality and biblical hospitality is summed up this way. In a worldly version of hospitality, the focus is on the host, the focus is on the host of the home. And so, and a lot of us can fall into this trap, obviously, and we begin to think, I need to clean my house super, super clean. It should be nice and tidy. I need to make sure everything's outright. I need to make sure everything's decorated. And guys, hear me, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, there is a, a level here where obviously we want to clean our house. People are coming over. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it can become so addictive in your mind, so compulsive that you don't even have rest or peace. And the only thing you can think about is what are people going to think of you when they walk into your home? And you're doing it almost more to impress people. That's a worldly view of hospitality. But biblical hospitality, the focus isn't on the host. Where do you think the focus is? On the guest. That's right, on the guest. And so the biblical hospitality is more focused on the guest coming in your home. Not so much that it's picture perfect, but that, that you're inviting people over and you're already having questions in your mind of, uh, what needs do my guests have that I can address? How can I learn from them in our time together? What can they bring that's of value? What can I learn through conversation, dialogue, right? That's the mindset of biblical hospitality of somebody who's more focused on meeting the needs of their guests rather than let me impress them by how beautiful my home looks. Does that make sense? That's really good. So in the Bible, let's start here. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34, uh, one of the first major concepts 
of biblical hospitality is found here when the Lord instructs this to Moses. Now watch this. It says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt and I am the Lord your God. What I love about that verse is the Lord at the end connects it to Israel. He's saying, Israel, I want you to demonstrate hospitality to strangers, to foreigners in your land, but I want you to remember the why, because you yourself one day were a slave. Isn't that powerful? The Lord's reminding Israel, listen, I want you to show hospitality to strangers because at one point you were alienated. At one point you were slaves. And this is a really, not a suggestion, not an instruction. It's actually a command. Do you know that practicing the art of biblical hospitality, it's a lost art in the church today. But in the early church, this was part of the practice of the church. And somehow we have drifted way off course on this. So here's a definition that I love. I don't know if we have this one up here. Do we have, look at this right here. I found this definition. I thought this is great. So hospitality is this, the practice of welcoming, sheltering, in feeding with no thought of personal gain, those who come to your door. Much more than menus and table settings and lavish entertainment, hospitality is really about not just welcoming your guests, but allowing the presence of God in your midst to touch them and even transform them. Uh, I read a uh, read a snippet of a book by a guy named Joshua Jip. I think it's a wild last name, Jip, J-I-P-P. And uh, he has an amazing quote. I want to look at this definition. I think this is one of the best definitions of biblical hospitality I can find. This is what Joshua says. Hospitality is the act or the process by which the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of the guest. While hospitality uses the necessities of life, such as the protection of one's home, the offering of food, drink, conversation, and clothing, the primary goal of biblical hospitality is to create a self-welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. Isn't that powerful? Where a stranger can be converted into a friend. And when I read about that, it, to me, hospitality takes on a whole different form. Do you know what that tells me, guys? That tells me that hospitality is an instrument that could actually bring salvation, healing, and deliverance. If you want to write that down, that's a good one. Hospitality is an instrument that could bring salvation, healing, and deliverance. Few biblical examples. Who remembers Lot in the Bible? Right? Lot, Abraham, his uh, nephew. And there's a story in Genesis 19, 1 through 3. There's this story where Sodom and Gomorrah, the most godless place on earth at that time, right? God visits Abraham and he says, I'm going down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? And Abraham gets in that conversation with God about saving people. And what ends up happening in the story is that the Lord sends destructive angels to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and they go in to find anyone who would welcome them in. Look at this verse and uh, let's read that Genesis 19, one through three. 
And the two angels came to Sodom in that evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet here. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we're going to spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread in which they ate. Guys, for most of us, we know where this story goes. After this moment, Lot flees Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens? The Lord rains down fire from heaven and destroys the entire city. And Lot escapes with his life. What are you saying? Lot was saved by hospitality. Because Lot engaged in hospitality to the two angels, it literally saved his life. Hospitality is an instrument that God uses for salvation, healing, and deliverance. I can personally tell you in my own life, hospitality saved my literal life. Completely, completely gone on drugs and alcohol addiction so bad. When I went to a rehab center, I was welcomed in. Now, there were some rules. There were some things I had to abide by. But the environment they provided, the environment that was there made me feel, number one, safe. Number two, not alone. And number three, God. It made, it made a place where I could actually meet the Lord himself. Hospitality saved my life. But we don't think of it that way, do we? We just think of a good meal, good time, food, games, which is good. But I want to elevate our thinking this morning. I want to equip you with knowledge to know that in the Bible, hospitality could actually transform a person's life. Who knows what happens if you have a guest over to your home? You never know just what one act of kindness, one act of generosity, just one act of love, not even planned out. But in the moment, you have no idea what one act can do to literally change someone's life. This is what it meant to practice hospitality. How about Rahab? Anybody remember Rahab's story? In the book of Joshua, chapter 6, let's read these verses, 22 through 23. Remember, Joshua sent the two spies into Jericho, and the two spies went into Rahab's house, who was a prostitute. She came from a rough background. But the Bible says that when they went in to destroy Jericho, look what happened. Joshua said to the two men who had sent spies out into the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done that spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, her sister, and all who belonged to her. And they brought her out into the entire family and put them in the place outside of the camp of Israel. Rahab's literal life, but not just hers, but her entire family was saved because she demonstrated hospitality to what were strangers to her. What I love about her story is not only is her life spared, but there's an eternal purpose that happens. Because as many of you know, we just did this Christmas class this, this Wednesday morning when we talked about the genealogies of Jesus. Rahab ends up entering in to the genealogy of the son of the living God. That through Mary's side, Jesus is a descendant of Rahab, this woman right here. What if she didn't show hospitality? 
how would her life look different? And that's a question I want to ask you this morning. What if we don't show hospitality when we're supposed to? Is there even anything in the Bible that speaks about that? We won't have time to go into it this morning, but can I, can I tell you, I found something in the Word that speaks to that. It's a story when David, King David was running from Saul. Him and his men needed so much provision. They were, they were, they were on the run. Saul was trying to kill them, and they go to a man's house in this town called Nabal. He was married to a girl named Abigail. And David entreated Nabal, and he said, basically in 1 Samuel, he says, can you please help us? We need food, we need water, we need shelter. He was asking Nabal, you have the means, can you give us hospitality? Can you show hospitality to my men? And Nabal answers back and goes, who is David? Who do you think you are? That's my paraphrase. He goes, I'm not helping you. You're a fugitive. And he refused to help David. Abigail, who had a little bit more sense and closer to the Lord, said, Nabal, we've made a mistake. We have to help this man. And so she secretly goes out and shows hospitality to David and helps his men. But do you know what the Bible says happens to Nabal? The Bible says the Lord himself struck him down and he died. Now that's pretty drastic, pretty severe, but I do think there's a principle in there. And that is there's, there's even conditions if we fail to show hospitality. What would that even look like for our lives spiritually? Could there even be spiritual setbacks in our life when we have the ability to show hospitality, but we withhold it for whatever reason? I think that's a really good indicator that, that we need to really practice this. So we can go on and on about that, but how about the New Testament? New Testament offers several examples of showing hospitality. In fact, the Greek word for hospitality is what we call, it's pronounced philozenia, philozenia, and it actually means the love of strangers or to show love to strangers. Now, there's a few verses I love in the New Testament about that. Can we go to Hebrews 13 too? We were talking about this one in pre-service prayer this morning. Probably hands down one of my favorite verses about hospitality. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. There's a few implications here. One of them is that it's possible that the Lord may test you and I in our journey with him by how well we treat other people in the form of hospitality. And he does so by sending angels that we may not even recognize that could look very human. I can honestly say this has happened twice in my life, twice. I shared one story this morning. Let me share this other one. We were in a town in North Carolina. This is several, many years ago now. And we were doing a worship and prayer event for seven days, for 24 hours a day, a worship and prayer event in the, in the central town of the city in a rough part of the area. And the day that we went there to set up the tent, we had a team. We were setting up and erecting this tent this young man shows up, dropped off in a car. If I had to guess his age, maybe 19, maybe 20. Young man, never seen him before, didn't know him. He pulls up and says, hey, I heard about this, this gathering, this event going on, and I feel like the Lord has sent me here, and I'm supposed to be a part of it. So, you know, you kind of take that with a grain of salt, don't really know him. Like, okay, well, we could use some help digging some trenches, setting up. And you know what? This guy jumped right in. He had a great attitude, and he just jumped right in. So we worked that whole day, very kind. He's very nice. 
doesn't talk much. And then at the end of the day, we're all going back to hotel places to stay. And I asked him, I said, you got a place to stay? He goes, no. I said, no. So what was your plan? He goes, well, since this is going to go 24-7, I figured I could just sleep here underneath the tent. I'm thinking, who are you? So we had partnered with a uh, rescue mission similar to Miracle Hill in that town. And I called the lady, the director. So she says, hey, I got room for him. If he wants a room in our rescue shelter, he can come. So I told him he was ecstatic. So he went to the rescue shelter. It's a three-block walk from the site. And for the next week, for seven days, he stayed in that shelter. And every day he did everything he was there. But I observed him and I watched him. And there was just something different about this guy. Amber knows, she remembers. I remember there would be times at worship, like this morning, how worship was going. There'd be times when worship was so strong and he would just be standing to the side, almost like this. Almost like a guardian, if I, like a guardian. He was guarding something. It's like he was a protector. And everything we asked, he did. He did with a cheerful heart. It was, it was unbelievable. So we go through seven days. At the end of the day, the whole event is over. And he comes up to me, and I will never forget this as long as I live. He goes, Mr. Thornton, I want to thank you for allowing me space to be here this week. And he goes, I just want to sow a seed into what the Lord is doing here. And I, this guy, I mean, he has shorts and a T-shirt on. He's been in a homeless shelter for a week. He takes out a wad of cash and lays it right on the table like that high. It's all the money that we need to do the next event in the next town. Pays for it. And then he just walks off. I look back at that and I read verses like this. Perhaps the Lord was testing me. Perhaps the Lord was testing. He may not look like what you think. He may look a little different, a little odd. But are you going to exclude him? Or are you actually going to engage in hospitality? Are you going to show and share what I've blessed you with with this person? powerful. Who knows how many angels we've entertained in our life and not even know it. What if in the heaven one day we get up there and we actually realize, holy cow, you came to my house. You were an angel, not a real person. There's no telling that what happened. So I, I love that verse. How about a few more? Third John. This is one of the shortest books in the Bible. Third John one. It says, therefore, oh, let me, um, I think I had the wrong one on there. I'm sorry, I think that's the wrong scripture. We had, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such people that we may work together for the truth. I think that was for another slide, brother. How about Romans 12, 13? This is another good one. Share with the Lord's people, all who are in need. How about that word right there? Practice hospitality. This is, means it's not a one and done thing. But this is something that should be part of the believer's natural part of life, that we, that we consistently, on rhythm, practice hospitality. Even elders and deacons are commanded to show hospitality in Timothy and Titus. For the next few moments, let's do this. I want to share with you just several practical ways of what it looks like to practice biblical hospitality, right? So number one, let's start here. What does it look like to practice hospitality? Prepare the atmosphere. Prepare the atmosphere. Prepare the environment. Can you pull up Acts 9, 36 through 40? 
if hospitality is an instrument that God uses to bring salvation, healing, and deliverance, then you know what that tells me? That hospitality is a form of spiritual warfare. One thing I've learned is that God is always looking, the Father is always looking for an environment to move in. He is always looking for an environment to be prepared through us so that he could actually move in. Now, there's a level of his sovereignty where he could just bust in and do, do, do what he wants to do, right? See that in Paul's case on the road to Damascus? Jesus just appears, blind Saul. There's moments like that, but then there's other moments in the Bible where the Lord actually moves through some of the leaders to prepare environments, to prepare rooms and atmospheres so that God could actually move powerfully through the scene. And we see that in Acts 9. One of my favorite stories is Acts 9.36 about this. And it's a story about the apostle Peter and Dorcas, whose name was Tabitha, who was a disciple. And I had a question. Every time I read this story, I could never get the answer to. Watch this. It says, now there was in Joppa, everyone say Joppa. Side biblical note for any Bible nerd slash scholars in here. In Hebrew, that's Jaffa. That's the place where Jonah, the prophet Jonah, entered the ship to sail away when he ran away from the Lord. But now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now in those days, she became very ill and died. And when they had washed her, they had laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing him the tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. The correct word is he cast them out outside in Greek. And he knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. She saw Peter and sat up. I don't know about you, but when I read this story. There's one verse here that puzzled me for so long. Could never understand it. Asked the Lord so many times. And finally, he gave me a revelation on it. My question was, why did Peter kick everyone out of the room? Because in my mind, especially how I grew up, I would have done the opposite. I would have been like, okay, this girl is dead. The Lord has brought me here. We need a miracle. I need every intercessor. We need every bottle of anointing oil. We need the handkerchiefs. We need the flags. We need the shofar. Like, like bring it all in. Let's lay hands on this girl and begin to war over her so she rises from the dead. Anybody probably would have done that at some point? Mm -hmm. I know I'm not the only one. But Peter doesn't do that, does he? He actually walks in and dismisses the weepers, those who are mourning over her, out of the room. Could never understand that. And, you know, you got to think of it this way. There's a legitimate reason why they're weeping. There's a legitimate reason why they're mourning. They love this girl. She was a, an incredible disciple. Seemed like her life was taken too early so it almost seems harsh that Peter would do this act. And then the Lord hit me with revelation. He said, the reason why I had Peter dismiss them out of the room 
It's because they were challenging the environment and the atmosphere of what I wanted to do. They were weeping and mourning, but God wanted to bring resurrection and life. They were agreeing with death because they were only looking through their natural eyes, but God wanted to bring resurrection life. And so Peter had to dismiss them out of the room. He had to dismiss the hindrances in the atmosphere so that God could bring resurrection life and raise that girl from the dead. What do you say? Hospitality looks like you and I preparing environments, rooms and spaces for God to move in. That tells me, that tells me that there's some things that need to be dismissed from our life. I'm going to throw that microphone. If you know me, I do that a lot. There's some things that maybe have to be dismissed out of our life to do what God wants to do. Man, this is huge. This is massive. Think about it. That could be relationships, friendships. That could be situations that you're going through. Maybe even personal things in your own heart that you're wrestling. What I want to challenge you with this morning is what, what may have to be dismissed? Because what's really happening is it's challenging what God wants to bring in your life in this season. It's challenging the direction where he's taking you now. And so you have to have inside revelation of, oh, wow, I may have to like Peter did, excuse some things out of my life so that you can bring life, resurrection into my life. If you think of your heart as a couch, think of it this way. And there are certain friendships, relationships, maybe for a season it was great, but you know it's changed now. Something has shifted now. But they're still sitting on the couch of your heart. What I've learned about King Jesus, he's never going to compete for space in your heart for someone else. He's not going to compete for space. He's not going to jockey for position in our hearts. He's going to wait till he's welcomed. He's going to wait until certain things even change, dismissed, so that he could have a seat on the couch. It is getting quieter by the moment. You remember the story, Mary's pregnant with the Lord. And they go where? They go to the place to get a, a room to have them. And there's that famous line, no room in the inn. There's no room in the inn. So we know the Lord is now born, the King of glory, the Messiah, the creator of us is actually born among animals in a stable. What is the lesson? What is he showing us? He's saying, look, I'd rather show up in a barn where I'm welcomed than come to a beautiful house where I'm not. I'd rather show up where it's dirty, dangy, muddy, but there's a level of humility. There's a level of acknowledgement. There's a level of teachability. There's a level of, I'm, I want to welcome you. I may not have it all together. I may, not have the, I may not have all the right things, but Lord, I recognize I need you in my life. He will show up to a heart that way. But if we have all this form, it just appears good. We're trying to be perfect and everything on the outside looks good. Nah, we don't really need you. He's not going to show up to that place. He's not going to show up. And what are you saying? I'm saying, what does hospitality look like? It looks like when you and I prepare places for the king of glory to move in our life. So, what places and spaces have to be prepared this holiday season? 
How are you going to prepare your home this Christmas? How are you going to prepare your marriage? How are you going to prepare your children? How are you going to prepare your work relationships? Even small little gestures, like I was saying, of acts of kindness, generosity, intentional thinking, that provides a way for the king of glory to move in such a way that people's lives are transformed. Remember, hospitality, not only creating a safe place, but it's for the transformation of the identity of the stranger to a friend and a believer. That's powerful. That's powerful. One other thought I had on that is authority. I want to remind us, as believers, we carry a measure of authority. And when we act in faith, when we step out in faith as Peter did, we have authority to prepare those rooms and those environments. We don't have to be afraid of conversations. We don't have to be afraid of confrontation that's needed because we are in faith stepping into what the Lord is leading us to do. There's real spiritual authority that happens in that place in your life. But the key to walking in your authority is stepping out in your faith. That's huge. All right, number two, practice hospitality with wisdom. How do we practice hospitality? We do need to have wisdom in it. Now, it's really easy to assume that we just show hospitality to everyone and anyone because that's what love or what we think love would say. But the Bible has a different paradigm. If we're true to the word and we look at the scriptures, we actually see there's some groups of people the Bible teaches us to not show hospitality to. It actually has provision for us to not engage uh, at the dinner table with certain groups of people. And the apostle John warned about that. The apostle Peter warned about that. So let's look at the, a few of those. There are two groups of people, essentially. The first one is false teachers. Look at here, 2 John 9 through 11. We have 2 John, yep, 9 through 11. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide, listen to that, in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Before you move that side, I do want to put this point out here. Here's where it gets a little bit difficult and where you need discernment. Because a lot of folks will say and think, I do abide in the teachings of Jesus. But you know that there's something off and not right. It doesn't line up with the actions. Can I get it? Amen? Go back to that. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Wow. Again, the Bible's so clear. Again, teachings, we can expound on that, but what are some of the teachings of Christ? I can think of a few, but the one that really sticks out to me for sure is when Peter looks at the Lord and says, how many times should I forgive my brother right there? Seven times, Jesus? He goes, no, Peter, up to 70 times seven. Right? Forgiveness is a teaching of Jesus. So what is this pointing to? People who do not abide and walk out the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, you may have some superficial conversation. You may have some connection points, but there's a difference when you actually invite them in your home and you fellowship and break bread together. And here's the difference. It's the principle of agreement. 
Both the Lord and the enemy move through the principle of agreement. Where two or three are gathered and agree, so I'll be there in the midst. Two angels on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, they're in agreement on who he is. The presence, I'll be there. But at the same time, if we agree with the enemy, if we agree with lies, doubt, fear, judgments, offenses, then we also have agreement with him to influence our lives in a negative way. That's what these disciples are talking about. It's, it's, he's, he's wanting to raise the wisdom and the prophetic discernment of the early church to say, hey, there are certain people you desperately need to bring in your home, show hospitality to, but there's also some that you don't. Look at this second group. This is even more sobering. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. Now, Paul deals with this a lot in the Corinthian church. This is what he says. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler, do not even eat. That's a, because that's the place of agreement. Do not even eat with folks like that, with such people. So this group is what is called unrepentant believers. Before I even elaborate on that, I actually found an incredible quote of a Bible teacher, a pastor in California, who actually comments on this verse, greatest definition. And I have these quotes up here. His name is Pastor Micah Angelo from California, skilled, educated guy, podcast. But I want to read his quote on that verse, what we just read. This is what this pastor says, senior pastor. This is not a reference to the Christian who is ignorant in his sin. And this or the Christian who is struggling for help in the fight against sin, right? There, there's some people that they just really don't know. There's grace for that. And there are people that are really, they know, but they're struggling. They're making attempts. They're making efforts to walk that out. And what that looks like is there's a level of humility they're walking in. They're teachable. They're coachable. They're, they're listening and considering what other people are saying instead of defending what they think is right or true. He said, but, but instead, this passage is not talking about those. It says, instead, this is the professing Christian, the believer who continues an unrepentant sin after being warned, counseled, and confronted by the scriptures. Christians, in an attempt to reach out to these types of individuals, are tempted to befriend them in such a way that acts as if there was no problem. We cannot act as if nothing is wrong and invite such Christians into our homes to eat. We cannot continue a business-as-usual approach. Sin has ruined our fellowship and our time together. Lord, this isn't to make us more super spiritual, to condemn people. They're writing for our protection. These were fathers of the faith helping the younger ones stay clear from the traps and the pitfalls of the enemy that happens in relationships, right? That's what's really going on here. And when I read things like that, it also opens up this whole possibility of how at the table of fellowship, the agreement, there's such a, an ability to transfer Things are transferred in that place. What do you mean by transferred? Think about this. First Corinthians, bad company, will corrupt, good character. Why is that passage in the Bible? How about Proverbs 12, 26? A righteous man chooses his friends wisely. 
Why is that in there? How about this one in Proverbs? Do not befriend an anger man or a man who's easily offended, lest you learn his ways. This is biblical wisdom to help you and I guide and manage our relationships, right? And it's one thing to recognize that and to, you know, there's a missional side where maybe the Lord has you speaking life and pouring in, but that's different when you're hanging out together and you're fellowshipping together. That's where that agreement begins to happen. This is what the Bible is warning. These are folks that we don't show hospitality to. Maybe if we do show hospitality, it may slow up the process of what God wants to do in their life. Consider that. But if we have distance that's healthy and great, then the Lord moves in that distance. Again, why do we have Bible verses like those? It's for our protection. It's for our development as Christians. All right, last one. We're almost done. Have the right attitude. What does it mean to practice biblical hospitality? Is we want to have the right attitude. Last verse today, 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9, great one. Above all, love, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without, what is that? Grumbling. So what is Peter saying? Essentially, this is what Peter's saying. He's saying when we do show hospitality to the stranger, to the unbeliever, or to believers, those groups of people we are to show hospitality to. When we do that, we must always remember to do it without any personal self-interest, any gain, anything that benefits us. In other words, essentially, Peter is saying we must have the right motive and a pure motive when we show hospitality. And this will help us keep the right attitude. Having the right attitude is critical. You know what I've learned the right attitude does? It actually positions us to become safe places. To be safe houses. I, want, I feel prophetically right now, the Lord speaking, where the Lord is taking us, this church, this house, in the days ahead, this is going to be a vital component that we practice and engage with hospitality in this way and that we become safe places. As we launch out into celebrate recovery groups especially next year. This is going to be huge. This is going to be huge that as the Lord sends people from Greenville in our midst that may be strangers, may be walking through difficult times, it's going to be really important for us to be safe places. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Guys, this right here, this can be applied in your dating relationship, in your marriage, in your work relationships, your friendships. What are some of the components that actually make a safe place? I thought about that when I was preparing, and there's a couple. There's more, obviously, but there's a couple that come to my mind. Number one, number one, when a person's voice is heard, when they have an opportunity to give input and they feel as if their voice is heard, this is a component that makes people feel safe. I remember when I was at Potter's Wheel, the rehab I went to, we would have these circle groups, and I didn't want to share nothing. But then they would ask me, tell us about your story, Michael. They opened the door for me to share my story, my voice. It was heard. Made me feel a little bit safe. You know what happens? The walls start coming down then, don't they? How about this one? There is space for them to wrestle things out. People feel safe when there's space for, things, for, space for them to wrestle things out. 
Ooh, if I have probably failed at this in our marriage with Amber, my marriage with Amber, I've failed at this more than one times. I think it's a guy problem too. As guys, especially the ones that are married in the house, I don't know about you, but for me, it's real easy to fix the problem or want to fix the problem. Right? We hear our spouses hurting. We hear them in pain. We hear them release it. And our natural response is to fix it, give a word, help. I, I have done that so many times. And then it always ends in a really good argument. Amber saying, quit trying to fix me. Just listen. Yes, I'm going to take my time here. Right? Isn't that true? Oh, man, I, I have failed at that so many times. I still fail at it. But I've gotten a little bit better. See, these things I'm sharing, these are things we grow in. You're not going to have this overnight. This is a lifetime growth and development. But I've learned that when I let Amber speak and her voice is heard, when there's space to wrestle things out instead of me jumping to a conclusion and saying, oh, this is what it is. I think she feels a little bit safer. Right? How about this? Vulnerability, their vulnerability is steward properly. It's a big one. We feel safe when we know that now that we're being vulnerable and the people, the person, whoever that dynamic is, they're stewarding our vulnerability in a mature way, right? They're not gossiping, slandering. They're not taking that, and, but they're actually mature about it. And they're, that is huge. That actually adds to the safety value that our vulnerability is steward properly. Last one here, this is... Perhaps my favorite one, simple humility. When humility, genuine humility now, not timidity, not bashfulness, not shyness, when genuine humility is present, that makes people feel safe. Humility. You know what I've learned about humility and why it's so powerful? It's because it's relatable. It's relatable. Here's a good word. It doesn't matter if you're introverted, extroverted, or somewhere in between. Everyone identifies with humility. When we step and walk in true, genuine humility, it makes us relatable to everyone, regardless of background, age, social status, because everyone identifies with humility. That's why Jesus coming as a man is so powerful. That's why he's able to identify and sympathize with us in our weakness. It's because he walked in deep humility. And that humility made Jesus relatable to everyone. So when we walk in humility, it really does create a safe place. And the whole purpose for safe places, that's not even the end goal. That's the beginning. But when people feel safe, the walls are down, the defenses are down, and now conversations are not superficial, but they're actually deep and meaningful and pur purposeful. And that's when we step into the definition of hospitality, that the stranger is converted to the friend, the unbeliever converted to the believer. Practice hospitality this season. Watch what God will do. It'll be powerful. Chad. That is the best teaching I've ever heard on hospitality. When Michael and Amber moved here, uh, the Holy Spirit moved on two couples here and bought a very expensive tent. And we put it out there. And I remember giving you two words. I said, it's as though this tent is drawing on the culture of heaven. 
It's like a yes. prayer and hospitality tent. Yes. But then I looked at you underneath that tent, and you guys know Marcy and the beautiful home that she built up here on top of the, the it's kind of up the hill, not a severe hill, but on top of the hill. I looked at Michael and I said, Marcy's building that house for this church. I remember that. That was three years ago. And in a, in a God story, the church just purchased Marcy's house. It's the Garden Hospitality House right up here. And here's what's cool. Maybe God's real. If we make too many plans, God doesn't have any space to break in. I just lead like this, saying, Lord, what are you doing? On January 7th, I'm getting on the stage with Wendy. We're going to talk about who Garden is, where we're going, how we're getting there. Imagine across the way from the White House up top, where we have five acres, imagine just some smaller homes that are hospitality homes where burned out pastors from all over the world can come, spend six months here, a year here, a year and a half here. Is Fannin in here this morning? Fannin, come up here a second. Come here. So this, this story's wild. You got me wound up. I mean, you got like a teaching mantle on you. As Fannin's coming up, listen, guys, when I first moved here, come, here, come on up here, Brian. Hospitality, it saved me in my rehab. It healed me here. It healed me. Yeah. I've just never seen hospitality the way you just talked about it. Um, so, this, golly, this would have been, it might have been 10 years ago. I don't, it's been a long time. Is it 10 years? The conversation that we're talking yeah. about? I mean, somewhere between seven and 10, yeah. So, Fannin comes to me seven or 10 years ago and had, I don't know if the Lord had shown you or it was just a burden or a passion, but for really this conversation. And you and me met back here in my old office that's now a Garden Academy room. Rem, rem, tell them what that conversation was about and basically the passion you carried and how you saw it. I think you even said tiny homes back then. Yeah. I mean, my, my wife and I have spent a long time in discipleship communities and planted those back in the day. I'd just come out of planting those around the world and countries and things like that. And I think the biggest part of what we see, you know, family is that fellowship, that togetherness, that hospitality. And we met, you know, at the time we were meeting in houses all around the world and seeing radical change in people's lives based on hospitality in houses. It's, what we, it's our DNA here, but on that small scale, you know, in living rooms. And so, um, you know, basically we, were, we actually ran out of a house and we were looking for a place to, to do that here. Uh, so it is funny that, you know, we have that conversation. Now we're part of this community where we, we do that, you know, here. And I remember saying to you, if you'll be patient, I didn't know it'd take this long. But if you'd be patient, I saw like, because you were part of a discipling, what's the organization, the global one? I can't think Fascinate of it. Fascinate Training School? No, the one that's YWAM? YWAM. If you know anything about YWAM, it's basically I saw a third world hunger and a third world ethos coming here. And uh, I probably shouldn't say this. Most pastors probably, you don't tell people where you live and you hide and you're skinny and you wear tight jeans, but I don't kind of do any of that. Um, I, told the father, I told the father a year ago, I said, I want to live close to the church. And, I, and, and Wendy and I are getting ready to close on a house close to the church. I feel like I'm supposed to share this word, and, and I'm going to have you. Joanna, come up here. Please, She's downstairs. Please, yeah. I'm going to have you uh, bless this hospitality thing. I'll end with this. I love 1 Corinthians 14.1. Go there really quick on your phone and so you can get the word in you. 1 Corinthians 14.1, because the prophetic, a lot of people, and I've been there, a lot of people, when, when you, especially when you go through pain or trauma, you begin to despise the prophetic without realizing it. That's a big problem with the Father. The Father does not despise the prophetic. Most churches are not open to the prophetic. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love, 
and eagerly desire all the gifts, especially you may prophesy. I'd never seen this until this morning. So I gave my, my wife a word three years ago, and she didn't receive it. And I'll be honest with you, I was like, I, I think I could have missed that one. I said, Wendy, your top gift, you carry a spirit of hospitality. When I came out, because when you prophesy, your brain really doesn't understand it. When I think hospitality, I think of somebody that can cook to make you cry. You know what I mean? But you know what Wendy is, because I cook all of our meals. You know what she's downstairs doing with children's ministry? Creating a space. Create, it's all about hospitality with the children's ministry until she passes it off. What's happening is the father is creating a culture of hospitality here, a safe place. Thursday night, Logan Hillstock said it's the largest first Celebrate Recovery meeting he's ever been to, and it was in this church. I think there was around 50 people in the room. We had 50 people on the team. The Father is growing a culture of what you just taught. Why don't you, you got anything to say into that, and then I'll have you pray. Yeah, I mean, I just, I'm in 100% agreement. That's why I think prophetically, this is where we're going. This is where he's taking us, and we are growing into this place. God is going to move. He has been moving, but he is going to move. I think this year coming up is going to be a very important year. I feel like I'm supposed to share this dream before Fannin blesses us. I had a dream recently. Uh, there was a large level leader in the kingdom of God. If I said his name, you would know it. And um, he was leading on a high level. And I turned and the father showed me in the dream the assignment on this house. Do you remember this? But I opened up my hands like this and butterflies came out from my wrist. And I knew in the dream that the father had sovereignly given this house a really large destiny in future. But your interpretation of that dream was really all about a different type of transformation. A metamorphosis. Uh, speak into that. Yeah, just the Lord gave us this word that we're going through a metamorphosis as a church, as a faith family. Last year or so, it, we are actually going through a metamorphosis where the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. And to me, that butterfly represents transformation. God wants people transformed in this place. What if it looks this way? Instead of me standing here and just screaming at the Jezebel spirit, what if we come in the opposite spirit of that and Jezebel gets eradicated through a culture of vulnerability, hospitality, confession of sin, humility? Transformation is the goal, but this, this place is a garden. Man. All right, Brian, take us home. Let's stand up together. Just pray over us and bless us how you're led. We can't move forward with entitlement and pride, and so I'm just going to pray against that. It's hard. we got people doing recovery in your homes. They're going to be messy, so we got to be okay with that. Jesus, I pray that this would be a community that's not entitled, but we're hospitable, that we don't ex expect things, that we're humble, that we're willing to just give everything we have to people and, and be quick to forgive. So I pray against pride in Jesus' name. This is not a community that's attacked by pride anymore. We just break that off in Jesus' name. We say that this is a humble place willing to receive people in their brokenness and to be broken ourselves. In Jesus' name, maybe so.